series of messages we're in is entitled Seven, Seven Churches Then and Now. And last week we just kind of opened up, talked a little bit about who the Lord of the church. We're talking about Jesus and Jesus' intention for the church. And today we're going to get a little bit, a little farther into our study for the next eight weeks or so now. When Marcy and I were first married, or when we were first married, we went on a honeymoon, like a lot of folks do. I still had a year of college left before we kind of moved into our life together. And prior, prior to us being married in the summer, I had to get a summer job. I had to save every nickel that I could save for a honeymoon, but also to get us into a house when we got back to, to Santa Cruz to finish up my senior year in college. So I worked and worked and saved every dime and every nickel, every penny, everything I could. And went on our honeymoon. I got had enough for two nights in a really nice hotel and a, and a really fancy dinner, and then I was broke. So not quite, but I almost broke. I didn't have a whole lot left. But one of the things that kind of made it easier was a family in Marcy's church had said, we're going to give you our vacation home in Yosemite for your honeymoon. And we went, sweet. That means we got this taken care of. Well, that vacation home was a cabin. It was a cabin. Now, it was a cabin cabin. So when you got to this cabin and you walked in, the cabin is kind of just a little bit of an A-frame, a little bit of this and that, tin roof on the top. None of the windows would open. And it was in the middle of August in a heat wave. Miserably hot. Not only that, it was also about the third year of a drought in 1976, and there was no water to be found anywhere in Northern California, including Yosemite. There was nothing. We couldn't go anywhere to go swimming. We were miserable. We, we sat in the house. We had one television channel that worked, and you, it kind of worked. You kind of see the waves on the TV. That was all. You really couldn't see anything else except this. So we'd sit there, and finally we, got to, we, got, we were having a conversation. And Marcy's mom and dad only lived about 45 minutes away from where we were staying. We said, you know, your mom and dad have air conditioning. You know, your mom and dad, we can eat free there. You know, we could play games. You know, they got, I mean, we just went on and on. I said, we were out the door, done, and down the hill. And here we are. We've been, we've been married like three days, and we're back at the folks' house because now we can get some benefit for this, you know. So after about two days of this, Marcy's dad had an appendicitis and had to be taken to the hospital. So I, I, the brand new groom, I get, to hang, I get to hang out with a bunch of goats, literally. I had to take care of his goats while he was gone. And there was one male goat who was extraordinarily frisky that I had to hobble and keep him from getting in with all the female goats. So wrestling this goat to the ground, I come up smelling like goat. But not just smelling like goat, smelling like musky goat. If you have ever been around musky goat... It is not going to be the fragrance of the year this coming, you know, Father's Day. It ain't going to happen. It was horrible. She would, she would stand, no, don't come near, get away from me. You stink. So I would shower and scrub and do all of this. Well, now here's, here's my point in all of this. Have you ever heard the phrase, I think the honeymoon's over? It's usually said kind of in jest. It's said tongue in cheek. You know, in the, in the fact that this brand new couple gets together, they have this wedded bliss of their marriage, and now they're having this little spat over here, and everybody's saying, I guess the honeymoon's over. I want to tell you something. If somebody had told us, I think the honeymoon's over, we said, oh, thank God, the honeymoon is over. It was just beyond 
beyond crazy. I didn't mention, too, that during the evening or during the night in that wonderful vacation home, the squirrels would knock acorns off of the trees. At night, they would hit the tin roof and roll down the tin roof. And then the squirrel would jump on top of the tin roof and chase the, chase the acorn down. That's what we heard all night long. It just couldn't have been any worse. The honeymoon was over, and we were grateful for that. You say, what does this have to do with anything? You're talking about churches, man. What is this? Well, church at Ephesus was a great church. But I could just tell you the best way that I think Jesus could characterize it, or we could, you could just say the honeymoon's over. There was something about the first love that disappeared. We're going to talk about that for a little while. But before we do, just a couple of things. There are some patterns that you're going to see that will occur in all seven of the churches. And it's important because Jesus is very systematic. All of the churches deal with the same issues or the, the same things he speaks to. He addresses, he addresses the angel or the pastor of the church. There's an identification of which church it is. There's a description of Jesus. There's an awareness that Jesus knows what's going on in the midst of it. In fact, every one of them, he'll says, I know your deeds. Now that's just, that's striking in and of itself just for us. There's a review of the strengths. There's an adjustment needed section of the message. There's a challenge to hear and to respond. And then there's a promise to those who overcome. But also Jesus is the one right in the center of it all. He is the one communicating the message. So this comes with great authority. Remember, Jesus is at the center of the church. The lampstands that we talked about last week. You're going to see each one of those. Jesus is in the center of the church. He is the focus. We are his bride and he is returning for us, his church. All of us, all of us are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The, the message that we read in Revelation 2 and 3 is both a collective message to all of the churches, but it's also an individual message. It speaks to us. It speaks to us. And that is really important to remember. And I want to leave this phrase with you. Jesus, Jesus loves his church enough Jesus loves his church enough to tell us the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I, I want this to sink in for just a second. Remember, there is both the collective nature of the church, but there's the individual side, you and me. And I am grateful for one, that Jesus loves me enough to tell me the truth about me. I need to hear that because often I may push the good, I, I may embrace the good, but push the bad, the ugly to the side because I don't want to hear it. But Jesus loves me enough to tell me both the good, the bad, and the ugly. But he doesn't leave us there. He always gives us an opportunity to respond, to hear, to respond to what he speaks into our life. And there's a, a great passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews says, be careful that you don't refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will not certainly escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely confident that Jesus is, going to, is speaking to us and will continue to speak to us through his word. But I don't want to refuse to listen. And I don't want you to refuse to listen. It's not about listening to me. That's not, that's not what it is. It's the messenger from heaven. And I, with 
as much passion and integrity that I, can, that I can muster this morning. I want you to know, when I stand to preach, I want to, to be speaking the word of God to you. God speaks this into my heart. He speaks to me, and then I want to communicate that to you. Yes, there is a message that I give, but this message is from God. I don't want to refuse to hear what God has to say. I want to open my ears. I want my heart to respond to what God is saying, and that is my prayer for all of us. To whatever degree, and hear this carefully, to whatever degree our lives or churches reflect the symptoms similar to any of the churches that Jesus addresses in these letters, we must listen to what the Spirit says to the church. And there's a difference between hearing and listening. I want to listen to what the Spirit has to say to the church. Ephesus was a great city, probably somewhere between 200 and Two hundred and five hundred thousand people lived in Ephesus. It was the, called the supreme, the supreme metropolis of Asia. One of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to. It was a strategic city. It was on a seaport. Trade routes went through it. The, the Roman governor lived there. There was a, the amphitheater. Read about it. Read about it in Acts chapter number nineteen. This is where Paul Paul is confronted with the silversmiths a man by the name of Demetrius who was making little statues of, of Diana or Artemis, who was the god of the Ephesians. In fact, it created an incredible uproar and almost a riot in Ephesus. But the amphitheater was gigantic. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the temple of Diana or Artemis was in Ephesus. Not only that, Paul founded the church in Ephesus. Timothy, his protege, pastored the church in Ephesus. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the, the letters of John, and also the Revelation, he pastored the church. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, tradition has it that she lived with John because Jesus had given her charge over his mother on the cross, that she followed him to Ephesus, lived there, and died and was buried in Ephesus. It's a, it is a significant city. And being a significant city, it doesn't come with any surprise that this would be the first letter written, or the first letter addressed by Jesus to talk about some things that are significant to that church, and I believe significant to us. So look if, with me, if you would, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, but have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Do not repent. I, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, but... You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a great passage of Scripture, and there's some things that I just want us to spend a few moments with. And, and it is, it's a message to the church in Ephesus, but it's also a message to Crossroads Church and a message to each one of us. The first is this. Keep doing the right things. I, I want to encourage you this morning, keep doing the right things. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus and to all of the churches, I know your deeds. 
And that's really significant. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. I, I love that. But he, he knows our deeds. He knows what's going on in our life. He knows what's going on at Crossroads Church. He knows what's going on in our lives. I'm grateful that he does. And he sees, he sees the good things that we're doing. And I want to encourage you, keep on doing the good things. And it, you look at Ephesus and you say, all this, man, I, I see your hard work, your perseverance, and you know you can't stand for doctrinal mess-ups and false teachers. You, you're, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that more later in another message. These are things, these are good things. These are really good things. And it seems in some respects, this is like the perfect church. Ephesus is the perfect church. Many writers and pastors have, have quoted this or made a or have uh, written this, or some facsimile of it, this phrase, stop looking for the perfect church. It does not exist. Even if it did exist, the moment we joined it, it would no longer be perfect. It's true. There is no perfect church. Ephesus wasn't perfect, but they were doing some really good things. Some really good things. They're hard workers in the middle of a, of a very pagan city. They're not giving up in the face of opposition. They're doctrinally sound. and These are things that were worth commending, and Jesus points them out. And I would say, for us, there are good things that we are doing, and I want to just reinforce those with, with some thoughts. The first thing, how do we continue to keep doing this? First, influence culture. Influence culture, but remain separate from it. It is something that is so critical, and I talked a little bit about this last week. Influencing culture is something that you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must be about. We should not be influenced by culture, but we should be the ones who are influencing it. And that is significant. Just as the presence, and hear this, just as the presence of the righteous in Sodom was the only factor that could have restrained the judgment of God, the fate of a culture... The fate of a culture may depend ultimately on the behavior of the believers in that culture. You hear that? The fate of a culture may ultimately depend upon the behavior of the believers in that culture. Go back to the story of Sodom in the book of Genesis. Abraham prayed to God, if you find 50 righteous, will you spare it? 40, 30, 20, 10. And God said, for the sake of 10, I will spare the city. And the city came under the judgment of God. What does it say about us? What responsibility do we have as the church of Jesus Christ to be influencing culture rather than being influenced by it? So significant. And incredibly humbling. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're the salt of the earth. But if, that's, if the salt loses its salty taste, it cannot be made salty again. It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and walked on. You're the light that gives light to the world. Can I just stop for a second? You are the light that gives light to the world. You are the light that gives light to the world. Do we understand how significant that is to influence, to influence our world rather than be influenced by it? 
city that's built on a hill cannot be hidden, and people don't hide a light under a bowl. They put it on a lampstand so the light shines for all the people in the house. In the same way, you should be a light for other people. Live so that they will see the good things you do and will praise your Father in heaven. I want to encourage you to continue to do the right things and let people see that in it, not for your benefit, but to give glory to our Father in heaven. Second way that we can be an influence, or we can keep doing the right things, is, is know what you believe and build on it. Know what you believe and build on it. At Crossroads Church, we have statements of faith. This is what we believe. And just two of them very briefly. One is that the Word of God is our ultimate authority. It is what determines our rules of faith and practice. This is how we live. It's here. And then that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Those are just two of them. We have others, yes. Those are just two of them. And can I just make a challenge out to every parent and every grandparent in the room? Know what you believe and then pass it on to the next generation. Reinforce that. Build it, build it in your life, but build it in their life. Because I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you, your children and your grandchildren will be challenged every step of the way in their faith. Every step. And if they know what they believe, if they're absolutely assured of the faith that you have given to them and you have built in them, they'll be able to stand the test when the test comes. The test will come. Please remember, Acts chapter 4, only Jesus has the power to save. That's what we're talking about. This is something we need to know. Only Jesus has the power to save. His name is the only one in all the world that can save anyone. Hallelujah. Then 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. And then the third thought is live with conviction. Live with conviction and nurture it. Live with conviction and nurture it. I heard this phrase years ago, stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And that really is, although it's a cliche and somewhat trite, it's really true. Stand for something or you'll fall for anything. To have convictions means that you're going to have a fixed or strong belief. You are, you're absolutely sure of what you believe. Now that goes back, yes, to, to knowing what you believe, but then it is having the convictions to stand on that and to not, not waver one way or the other. These are good things. These are things that needs to be nurtured in our life. We are, and I'll just read it the way I wrote it. What this means, it means for us, and I want you to hear this, there are behaviors, there are places, there are attitudes, there is language that we as followers of Jesus Christ are not to engage in. You say, that sounds a little kind of Kind of radical there. Let's say it again. As followers of Jesus Christ, there are behaviors, there are places, there are attitudes, 
There are language that we are not to be engaged in. We are convinced that these will not benefit us and our walk of faith in Jesus Christ in any way. I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when He begins to put His arm or His hand upon certain areas of my life, and I will respond to that. I want to be a person of conviction, and I want the Spirit of God, I want to, I want to nurture it. And I want the Spirit of God to remain active in my life and pushing against those things that don't please Him. In any way, I believe it's so important. Second Corinthians chapter six says, "So come away from those people and separate yourselves from them." Says the Lord, "Don't touch anything that's not clean, and I will accept you, dear friends." We have these promises from God, so we should make ourselves pure, free from anything that makes our body or our soul unclean. Our respect for God, I love this phrase, our respect for God should make us try to be completely holy in the way that we live. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true of us. Strive for an ever-increasing sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and His conviction in your life. Nurture it. Build it. Jesus commended the Ephesians for doing really good things and doing right things. It's great encouragement. I want to encourage us, keep doing the right things. The second thing that Jesus begins, or rather speaks to the Ephesians, he's, he talked about you've done really good things, keep doing them. second thing he says is that forsaking the best things really isn't the best thing. Forsaking the best things really isn't the best thing. The church of Ephesus was doing the right things, but they were not doing the best thing. The best thing. Or as Jesus said, They had forsaken it. To forsake something, it means to abandon that which is essential and an essential element of being a follower of Christ. And that is love. Jesus said to the Ephesians, he said, you have forsaken your first love. That understanding of what the first love is, is there's a variety of things that it could be. But most likely it's their love for God and, and how that was lived out. So there are a few thoughts about what love is. First, love, love is to be the highest of priorities. Matthew 22, the highest of priorities. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not only is it the highest of priorities, love is an identifying mark of a Christ follower. This is what sets us apart. Jesus said himself, and John is the one who actually recorded it. He said, so I give you now a new commandment. Love each other just as much as I have loved you. For when you demonstrate the same love I have for you, let me just stop. When you demonstrate the same love I have for you, what is that love? It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It is a love that never ends when we do that. When we demonstrate the same love I have for you, By loving one another, everyone will know that you're my true followers. Man, how powerful. But think of this. They've forsaken that. They've abandoned that. They've abandoned that love is the highest priority. They've abandoned the fact that it becomes the identifying mark of following Christ. The third is that, just remember, love is more important than all our spiritual or zealous actions. Remember, Remember, the Ephesians are doing a lot of good things. They're doing right things. And they're very active. But it's not enough. 
1 Corinthians 13, if I could speak all the languages of earth, Paul says, and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such a faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. They have abandoned They have abandoned their first love for the sake of doing a whole lot of stuff. Stuff doesn't cut it. Busy doesn't cut it. That's not what God requires of us. He requires that we would love as Jesus loved. It is to be a priority. It is the identifying mark of us as a follower of Christ. And then also, love is an imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. Read 1 John chapter 4. Once again, John who writes the message of Jesus to the Ephesians. He's the one who wrote it. Just a few verses. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who doesn't love does not know God, for God is love. If someone says, listen to this, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we can't see. And if he's given us this command, and he has given us this command, those who love God must also love the fellow believers. Most of us understand these things. I think as a follower of Christ or a person who is part of a community of faith, we kind of get this. So I got to thinking, I said, God, what, what are you trying to say to us? How does it apply? How do, and I won't even say to anybody else, how does it apply to me? How does it apply to me? A few weeks ago, I was doing some reading, and as you might imagine, I read a lot of a lot of different things about the church and life of the church and future of the church, etc. And I found an article I thought was really interesting. And this, the author said it this way: He said, "As a church, you probably cannot do everything that is is out there. You just can't do everything." He says, "But is there one thing you can do really well?" And I thought, "Yeah." So I began to ask. I said, "What is that one thing?" So I took it to our staff. We were chatting about it. And here was, the, here was their response. I think we as a church, at Crossroads Church, are really good at relationships and connections. I said, okay. That being the case, I took that to heart when I got to this part of the message. And I said, all right, Lord. I'm not going to talk about anybody other than me. So here are some reflections I take out of that. Now, let me just preface it by saying this. Now look at what Jesus said. Jesus spotted a flaw in Ephesus. He said, you're doing a lot of really good things. He said, but you've forsaken. You have abandoned the best thing. And because of that, if there's not a change, now this is to Ephesus. Keep that in mind. Jesus said to Ephesus, if there's not a change, your light will cease to exist. Do we understand the gravity of that? We can do a lot of good things as a church. We can do a lot of good things as a person. But when we forsake and abandon the best thing, there is the potential of our light being extinguished. Can I tell you, in 2019, there is no church in Ephesus. There's virtually no city of Ephesus. It's gone. So what does it mean to me? And yeah, it's convicting. 
How am I doing with the guest who walks in these doors longing for a connection? How am I doing? Am I open to them? Or is my agenda, or is my agenda and my comfortable relationships my priority? I'm not talking to anybody but me. How am I doing with those who who may require a bit more time? More of my time. Do I honor them in conversation? Prayer? Inclusion? Or do I just move on? How am, I, how am I doing with my folks, the folks in my neighborhood? In my school? In my local coffee shop? The athletic field? How am I doing with the person that's far from God? The disconnected or unengaged person with faith? Do, do these individuals see love in me? And are they drawn to Jesus because of the genuine love I'm living out? Or am I so self-absorbed and too busy doing the right things that I am not doing, I'm not busy, uh, rather I'm not doing the best thing? I want to tell you something. That's convicting to me. And that's just not a message to a church collectively. That's a message to every one of us individually in this room. Because Jesus said it through John. All men and women, everyone will know that you belong to me because you love each other. It's not how, it's not the building we're in. It's not the things we do. But it's the love that we live that will draw people to Jesus. Where glory will be given to God the Father because of it. Just because we might be busy doing good things, it does not mean we are being effective reflecting the love of Christ. Remember the church is who we are, it's not where we go. And I would just add the church is highly portable. It is where you are and where you go. Let the loveless church, let the loveless church beware A church that loses its love will soon lose its light. God help us. The third thing this morning, the message that Jesus speaks to Ephesus, is starting over is the only way forward. Starting over is the only way forward. There's really two things here, and different translations translate it differently. Some will say remember and repent, and this particular translation read this morning is repent and repent. But the idea first is to remember, is to remember. I grew up in southern Oregon, and the city that I grew up in was really crazy about a a number of things, as a lot of cities are. There was some focus there. They were crazy about hunting and fishing, and they were crazy about basketball and baseball. Now, the basketball and baseball, they got me. I didn't care as much about baseball, but basketball was where I kind of lived my life. Started playing basketball at the earliest age that I could play, and I had the privilege of playing all through school, all through college. It was wonderful. I'm grateful for those. And I remember a lot of great experiences playing basketball. The, team, the teammates that I w- was with, great friends, friends for the rest of my life with these guys. 
And I remember the coaches instructing us. I remember the discipline they put us through, the, all of the things. And one of the things that has grown out of that is that when I look back, when I remember, it helps me focus on some things, to be more productive about things. Now, I'm not, I'm not even talking about basketball. I'm talking about life lessons. I'm talking about the competitive spirit. A variety of things really help me for today. Remembering that helps me to be more productive today. A memory of, of these things are good for the present. And, and in fact, I would even say it this way, and I use this phrase a lot, the older I get, the older I get, the better I was. I was really good. And the older I get, the better I was. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'll ever, at my, the ripe old age of 29 that I am now, that I'll be able to play in the NBA because of remembering. But my point is it makes to remember has great productivity for today. And I believe there's a, there's a principle here for us. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, remember the height from which you have fallen. That's another translation. Remember the height from which you have fallen. In other words, remember the way that you used to love. Re- remember how you used to treat people. Remember how welcoming, remember how your, the love of Christ in your life was so evident to everyone around you. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Something powerful about memory. Joshua 4, well, the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan. The Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, from one, one from each tribe. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of, the, of Israelites. To serve as a sign among you in the future. Look, in the future, your children, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Israel was commanded to remember all that God had done. And there was something put in place. Remember what God has done. And I would just suggest this morning, Jesus is saying the same to us. Remember, remember when you first embraced faith and the love of God that was poured out into your heart by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Let that love be what characterizes our life today. Let us not forsake the best things for the sake of just good things. It's time to remember. Remember, let God remind you of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we love one another. That's what will show others that we belong to Jesus. Let your love be what characterizes everything that we do and say. Then he says to repent. We have an idea of what repentance is. is to turn from something and turn to something. Or in this case, you turn from things that displease God and you turn towards God. You see, this is serious. When Jesus calls them to repentance, he says, if you don't, if you don't, it's game over. It's game over. He says it two different times. Unless you repent, you too will perish. Yikes. Yikes. I don't want to just do good things. I want to do the best things. I want love to characterize my life. I want our church to be known as a church that loves unconditionally. That a person that walks through these doors 
They are embraced. They are loved. They are honored. They are welcomed. And they are pointed to Jesus Christ. They're not pointed to doing things. They're pointed to Jesus. Let that be what is reflected in our life. This whole idea of repentance, I looked at a story that Jesus told, and it's found in Luke chapter 13. Jesus told a parable of an unproductive fig tree. Because I look at this and I say, gosh, how how difficult, unless you repent, you too will perish. That's hard. That's hard. But Jesus was talking about justice in the middle of suffering. And listen listen to what he said. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for a fruit on it, but it didn't, he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Let me just stop. For three years now, I've been looking for fruit, and there isn't any. For three years. For three years. I'll say it another way. Over and over and over again, I've been appealing to you. I've been saying it again and again and again. And yet, listen to what happens now. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it, fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, next year fine. If not, then cut it down. What? What does this have? The patience of God is seen so clearly in, in, in the person who's taking care of the tree. It is God's desire that none of us would perish, but that all of us would come to repentance. And it's not just repentance of sin. It is repentance of doing a whole bunch of good things, but forsaking the best things. And God is calling to me. He's calling to me. He's calling to you. He's calling to us as a church to not forsake, to remember the heights from which we have fallen and come back to a place in repentance. Say, God, forgive me for not loving as I should love. Forgive me for not representing you as I should represent you everywhere I go. God, let my love be what is known in everyone I encounter. God, forgive us. And He's patient with us. That's why he calls again and again. Ephesus was a great church. It wasn't a perfect church. It had its flaws and difficulties. But Jesus loves his church enough to tell us the truth. The good, the bad, and even the ugly. But what is so magnificent about our God is he just doesn't leave it there, but he says, to him who is victorious, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You see, we're not left hopeless. We're not left on just this, there's no hope for us. If I don't do I'm done, I'm done. No, but the good news is this morning, we say, Jesus, I see the height from which I've fallen. 
I remember how I loved and I repent. I want back to that same place. Yes, I'm going to keep doing the good things and I'm going to push them forward even more aggressively than I've ever pushed them, but I am not going to forsake my first love. I want the love of God to captivate, to characterize my life. I want people to know that I love Jesus and I live in love for Jesus so that others will know the Father's love. That's what I desire for me, but a desire for you and for us as a church.